Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another exciting, informative, Christ-honoring episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens. I'm sitting in the studio of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who are listening to the program this evening. Again, we don't want you just to be listening. We want you to interact with us, send in your questions, call in with your questions. Maybe it's not a question that's original with you. Maybe it's something that someone has asked you if you've heard discussed at the lunchroom table, at the workplace. Maybe it's something that you've had discussed in maybe a Sunday school class at your church and you just feel like the Bible has got it discussed in that setting. We would be glad to answer your questions from a biblical worldview, applying the principles of Scripture to your question. Maybe you have a question, but you're unsure of whether you want to ask it publicly. If you want to keep it, mention that you want it to be kept anonymous, and we will keep it that way. And we are not here to insult anyone. We are not here to argue. And we are here to hear your question and answer it from a biblical worldview. We are thankful that you have chosen to make time on your Tuesday evening to join us for another episode of That's Truth. Pastor Murphy, we have a couple of questions that have come in before we jump into our topic. Uh, The first one comes from 1 Samuel chapter 31, verses 4 and 5, and 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, and verses 13 to 16, would you say that the Amalekite caused his own death by saying he killed Saul? Didn't Saul kill himself? And would you say that he was trying to get some sort of accolades by saying that he killed King Saul? Uh, I think you've got a proper interpretation of that passage because really I think the Amalekite was trying to ingratiate himself into the favor of King David. You know, Saul was always trying to kill King David, so he thought by claiming that he had um, actually killed Saul, it would somehow lead to some good favor with David. But of course, uh, even though David had the opportunity to kill Saul, uh, David never tempted to take the life of Saul because he saw Saul as being anointed by God and left the matter of vengeance with God. But the Amalekite, uh, in claiming that he had actually killed Saul when Saul had committed suicide, uh, was actually to his detriment because David exercised justice uh, out of the claim, not knowing all the details about Saul's death. So you're exactly right about that. It's a good interpretation. It shows me that you have some insight into Scripture. And our next question leads right into our topic of crime and punishment for tonight. 
Pastor, what good government what good government have to pay criminals or bad men to keep the peace? I live on an island in the Eastern Caribbean where the present government is paying the bad men money. They call it peace money in order to keep them down to keep the crime down and stop the killing. What do you make of that? Do you believe or think that a government should do that or lock them up and throw the key away because they know they are bad men? Well, I think any government that is doing, if it's happening, uh, is actually practicing some corruption and and showing clear injustice. Uh, I don't see how a good government who's concerned about good governance and the rule of law and order would facilitate uh, these criminals, knowing that they're criminals, and have to pay a bounty, as it were, or pay some kind of a, uh, almost like a, a criminal uh, enterprise, where like the mafia, where you have to, to pay them to, to not commit a crime. Uh, this is appalling. If this is true, uh, I, I, I think the, the people of that country should really, in the next elections, make it very, very clear that that's not acceptable. Well, as far as... Uh, um, incarcerating these people and throwing away the key uh, not knowing all the details I think they need to be brought to justice and I think a proper penalty ought to be exercised and if it is that they require 10, 15, 20 or 30 years I think uh, the legal uh, process should take course and justice should be administered but it is never uh, conducive to morality in a country or to the welfare of a country uh, for any government to be paying any kind of criminals uh, to prevent activity. What might be needed is more arrest, more investigation. But I, I, if I might share something here that is a little bit bothered to me sometimes, I think sometimes the criminal justice system, uh, it, to my mind, I don't know where the justice is in, in, in these kind of matters. For example, a lawyer can know that you've committed a crime, but yet he can get you off. I mean, what kind of morality is that? That doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, so I have a problem sometimes even in understanding the, the, the law. I think if a man is, is, is committed a crime, I can understand a, law, a, a, a lawyer trying to at least mitigate the amount of time he spent in jail. But to actually know that he's committed a crime and then to try to prove that he didn't commit it, to my mind, that's not only immoral, I think that is wrong. So it bothers me sometimes that this thing's in place, and I suppose within the de- democratic system is allowable, but by any moral standard, that can never be right. And I don't know the answer to dealing with that issue, but it concerns me uh, from a pastor's perspective and from an individual's perspective. But I don't think it's, it's uh, what you're suggesting. Uh, That's clearly unethical. It's immoral, and I don't think it helps the situation. It might help temporarily, but it would embolden those people as well to threaten the government for more crime and get extort them for even further <laughs> amount of money. So it, it just sounds quite comical uh, to hear something of that nature. It could be happening in the Caribbean. I'm assuming that what you're saying is true. And if it is true, it's a matter of grave concern and should be a matter of grave concern to even governments in the Caribbean. Thank you to the individuals who sent in those questions. We appreciate it. Do you have a question? We would love to answer it from a biblical perspective. It doesn't even have to be on tonight's topic of crime and punishment. You can call and be put live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 1-268-782-1454. Pastor, you referenced something in that question, your answer there, about it being unethical for a lawyer to 
claim or put forth the idea that a person didn't commit a crime if they did commit the crime. For the Christian lawyer who is listening and is saying, what should I do in a situation where I'm partway through a trial? And I realize you're not necessarily a legal expert, yeah, but, not. <laughs> but from a biblical perspective, how do you handle that? I think uh, I don't know how to counsel lawyers who found themselves where they're criminal lawyers. A criminal lawyer is supposed to defend the criminal. Yeah. Uh, I have a problem um, where I know that the person is guilty or the, judge know, the, uh, the lawyer knows he's guilty, but yet it's presenting the case as though there's no guilt. I have a problem with that. Uh, I can't see how that can be right morally. I can't see how that can be right before God. And if it's not right before God, I have a problem of believing it's right before man. As far as uh, what to do, I would do the ethical thing. I, if I was a lawyer, I don't mind taking a case where uh, I need to defend a person, but I will let them know, quite frankly, that you know, if, 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 they, if there's guilt, they have to be guilt. And I will try to mitigate the sentence and, and, and try, stuff like that. But in terms of trying to prove that you are not guilty when I know you're guilty, I couldn't do that. My conscience would bother me. And, and, and what bothers me is that uh, because it is something that is done in the secular world, in, 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 in the domain of, of, of non-religion, out of the church, uh, somehow I can't, I have a problem on it. Why Christians would think that because it's, it's something outside of the church and going into your secular job, j- just like, that's like me um, doing something wrong in the bank, for example. Uh, does that make it right because it's not in the church, it's done in the bank? And I think that, I think people need to examine that more carefully. The other thing, they not getting off on the other side, I think sometimes that advertising is immoral. Some forms of advertising, they create desire where there's no desire. And sometimes, uh, even for uh, things that are evil and, and immoral, how can I be a uh, uh, marketing executive, for example, and engage in those kind of activities? There are some activities, I think, that are not proper for Christians, and I think Christians need to realize that. It's like, I couldn't be a person serving alcohol at a bar. If I think alcohol is wrong for me and wrong for my family, uh, it would jeopardize my conscience to be able to do that. Right. So I do think there are certain jobs that Christians should, even if you're in the job currently, work yourself out of it, right? Think of a guy working at a, a place that creates alcoholic beverage or beers or something like that. You know, uh, a Christian ought to let his conscience guide him, but he must be informed by the morality of Scripture. And there are some things where you have to work yourself out of it. You just can't engage in it. I've been a, uh, a, a salesman for some time as well, and there's certain jobs I couldn't take as a salesman. Um, you know, if I'm selling food items and selling equipment, selling machines, et cetera, et cetera, but to be selling alcohol and, and, and stuff like that, it, it would bother me as a person. Now, I know these are things that, this is where individual conscience comes into play, but I do think it's important not to surrender your Christianity, ignore your Christianity because you're in a particular job. Uh, if we do that, we have no ultimate absolute morality and no transcendent values and we are now virtually operating with the church with certain standards but when we get out that's to my mind is double standard just to be clear though would you agree that there are there is a place and a need for christian lawyers of course i I wish they had more christian lawyers and i wish they had some christian uh what you call psychiatrists etc etc because when you're dealing with a secular psychiatrist, he has no idea of a spiritual dimension. So he thinks that every person that's in the mental asylum is crazy. And I'm telling you, every person there is not crazy. Uh, and, and sometimes a pastor needs to be able to work with a, a psychiatrist in helping people who have mental problems, especially people who have been on drugs. Once you get labeled by a psychiatrist that you're schizophrenic, 
uh, or you got manic depression or something like that, you are almost labeled for life. Right? And a lot of cases, that's very unfortunate because you've got to carry that label. And I think sometimes uh, there's the aspect of demonism that is also uh, p- people who are, some people who are mad, they're just not mad because it's an organic problem. They're demonized. But a person in, from a secular dimension, he doesn't understand that. And all he thinks to do is to sedate the person, give them the, some kind of pill to, to make them into zombies. Uh, and it's very, very unfortunate. Uh, very, very. Un- there are also when you mention lawyers, for example. I think there are some cases where, uh, if I were a Christian lawyer, there are certain cases I would take up. Uh, that even if it didn't cost, char- I mean, even if it wasn't a cost involved. Yeah, pro bono. In, 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 in the in the interest of justice, in the interest of of, of morality and, and standards, I would take those kind of cases if I were a Christian lawyer. Once money becomes the motivating principle for any any uh, vocation. Uh, the moral element pretty much disappears, and all that becomes uh, matters now is the almighty dollar, and how much more it's worth. I think that is very unfortunate when Christians adopt that kind of an attitude. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The name of the program is That's Truth. It is a live call-in program that takes place every Tuesday evening from 7:30 until 9 p.m. here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. It is an interactive program, so we look forward to your interaction. There are a number of ways you can communicate with us. You can call and ask your question live on the air. The phone line is open, available, and waiting for you. And the number to call is 268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 268 782 Tonight, we are talking about the topic of crime and punishment. I know this is a broad topic, and it's something that uh, could have a lot of different approaches to it. But as usual, Pastor, let's start out by defining some terms. What exactly is crime, and how would you put it in simple terms, if that's possible? Well, the one of the simplest uh, definitions I've gotten of crime, really, that they describe it as some activity or negligence that a human authority has deemed or decided should be punished, usually because uh, it seemed to be injurious uh, to some person. So that's the simplest definition. Really, it's an activity or, or negligence that um, uh, some human, human authority um, decides that it's punishable uh, because it is deemed injurious to some other individual. Uh, so I think that is basic, fundamental, and a core definition. Normally, of course, the the uh, authority is normally the government or the legislature that decides on those kind of things. But that's basically what it is. Um, now, everything on this program, we take back to a biblical or a Christian perspective or a Christian worldview is the phrase that I often use. From a Christian perspective, how does crime relate to sin? And I'll ask you a uh, loaded question here. Are all sins crimes and are all crimes sins? Well, the first thing I would say about that is that uh, sin and crime are not synonymous. Okay. Uh, Not all sins are criminal. And what I mean by that is sin is uh, Godward activity against God and you violate some standard that God has established. With crime, it's a human standard that has been established that you violate. Uh, For example, uh, lust is not a crime. Okay. But it's a sin. Uh, covetousness is not a crime, but it's a sin. And, of course, uh, pride 
is not a crime but it's a sin. So you see, there's not they're not not to be equated. They're not synonymous. Similarly, not all crimes are sinful. Let me explain. For example, there are certain laws in different countries that make something wrong or evil. For example, there are some countries that you cannot witness for Christ. That's illegal authority. I mean, but again, that's not a sin. You, you're actually obeying God rather than obeying man. There are also, for example, countries you can't distribute the Bible. You can't carry the Bible. That's against that country's law. To, but that's, it's not a sin for me to carry a Bible and distribute the Bible because I have a higher authority than that. And then uh, some countries, including uh, Canada, for example, you cannot publicly denounce homosexuality because there's a, a price for that and you might either go to jail or pay some kind of a fine. Again, uh, I can't see... Uh, maybe I will not be allowed to visit the country, but I can't see if I was preaching in a country that for the sake of, uh, for, uh, that I, if I was dealing with Romans, for example, chapter 1, I can't see how I can refuse to denounce uh, the homosexual lifestyle. So even though it is something that is uh, sanctioned by law uh, and I would have penalties, it's not a sin for me to preach against what the Bible said is wrong. Just like saying I can't say adultery is wrong or fornication is wrong. Now, people don't have problems with pastors saying Adultery is wrong. But why do they have a problem saying that homosexuality is wrong or lesbianism is wrong? It has to do with the times in which we're living and the legislatures, uh, some of them uh, in, in other countries, have become, they are homosexual and they're trying to push the homosexual agenda so it goes across the governmental authorities. So I'm saying that they're not synonymous and I hope people understand uh, that they're not syn- synonymous. And when it comes to crime to Nathan, uh, the punishment for crime is actually determined by the society, uh, and that society normally is represented by the governmental authorities, uh, and it's always done, we hope, when it enacts some kind of a punishment for the welfare of its members, and hopefully it is based on moral principles in terms of the punishment that's meted out as a result of the crime question from a listener. Pastor Murphy, what gives you as Christians the right to define what is a crime and what isn't based on God's law? I just give you a definition, a, a public definition. I'm not defining uh, crime myself. I'm just giving you the definition that was given. Uh, as far as society is concerned, we're looking from the perspective of a crime in terms of society. We're not talking about crime in terms of, of a Christian. For example, we know that uh, I mentioned uh, covetousness, I mentioned pride, I mentioned uh, lust. Certainly that's a crime against God, but it's not a crime against uh, 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 within society. It's not judged as a crime. So I'm just trying to make that subtle distinction between what is sin in society and what is crime in society. That's all I'm trying to do. And a follow-up. Pastor Murphy, do you follow the Bible as it relates to crime? Well, it, it depends. For example... Uh, you can't depend on which part of the Bible as well. Under the Old Testament economy of law, for example, if I broke the Sabbath, I would be stoned. Uh, if I commit uh, fornication, I would have been killed. If I commit adultery, I would have been killed. If I am disrespectful to my parents in such a way that I abuse them, I would be stoned. So clearly, there are uh, crimes that were under the Old Testament economy that are no longer relevant today. So... I'm not too sure what you mean by that. Um, they were asking follow-up questions that you foresaw where they were going. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, but uh, again, you know, we're, we're not living in a theocracy. 
and we're not living under the economy of law. We're living under the economy of grace, and we're living now in a democracy. So clearly, the church and the uh, and by the way, this is the mistake that the Catholic Church made many, many centuries ago, where they felt that they had uh, not only did they have ecclesiastical authority, but they had governmental authority, and they had authority to take the life of a person who was a heretic, who disbelieved uh, their Catholic doctrines, or who did not believe in uh, infant baptism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they took matters into their own hand and actually uh, used violence because they thought they had the, not only ecclesiastical authority, but legal authority to do that. The church has no authority to use violence or to exercise judgment in these kind of matters. The, the state has been given that authority. If you read Romans chapter 13, it spells out very clearly the role of the government uh, in, in respect to the church and how the church ought to respect governmental authority. It's an interesting comment from a caller. Uh, they mentioned that as far as they are aware, a lawyer is not allowed to ask their client if they committed the criminal act. Well, they should. Whether they're permitted to ask or not, they should. I'm talking from a moral perspective of the pastor, and I'm talking from a Christian perspective. Uh, I think that is something that should be found out. Why, why would I want to defend somebody if I know that they've committed a crime? Uh, why would I want to get them off if I know they've committed a crime? And many times the lawyers know that they've committed a crime. So how, how, how can that be just? How can that be moral? That's where I have the issue. I'm not saying you have to agree with me, but I'm speaking from a biblical, biblical perspective. We cannot uh, violate our conscience and surrender our conscience or sell our conscience for the sake of some kind of a moral standard that we have. We're supposed to live biblically and, and uh, conduct ourselves even in, in society, uh, and we allow biblical principles to govern our lives. Even when we go into our vocations, we just can't say, because I'm, I'm this kind of a person, I'm, I'm doing this kind of vocation, this kind of a job, I just uh, abandon Christian morality. Our Christianity must Christianize everything that we do. And that's all I'm saying. I don't expect people to agree with me on these points, but I'm simply saying as a pastor, uh, I think it's a concern to, to me that people can be committing crimes, the, the lawyer know they've committed a crime, and yet try to get them off. To my mind, that is totally immoral. Thank you to the individual who sent in that question or that comment. We appreciate you listening. Pastor, I want to go back real briefly to what you were mentioning a minute ago um, before we do that, let me share the contact information. If you have a question, you can call us and be put live on the air, 268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text us, you can send your question to 268-782-1454. You were referencing the fact that in the Old Testament, uh, if a child was disrespectful to the parents, they could be stoned. How, as a Christian in the year 2021, how do I decide which passages of Scripture to apply and to follow literally and which ones are under, as you put it, I believe, the Old Testament law or the Old Testament period? Well, generally speaking, uh, the Old Testament principles, um, the Old Testament law uh, is, is not really to govern the church. It's not supposed to govern society as well. Uh, those were made under the Mosaic economy when Israel was virtually a theocracy. Uh, however, uh, when it comes to the church and the, how Christians view things, there are the New Testament principles to govern that. Now, there are Old Testament principles that are relevant whether it's under the Old Testament economy or not. 
the principle is relevant, but the punishment is not applicable because we don't have the right to put exercise that we don't have judicial right and uh, the, the right to punish. The government has been given that right in the New Testament, uh, Romans chapter thirteen. Uh, so I would say to a person, a lot has to do with the the principle. If it's against the law of the land, you one has to be very very careful about that. Uh, if it is not against the law of the land, uh, and is, 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 there is a, a uh, an analogy of it in the New Testament, uh, I think it's right and proper. Let me use an illustration, Nathan. When Paul is teaching uh, in the book of uh, Timothy about, I'm using this. This just came to mind about the need to, uh, for example, take pastors. The need to renumerate pastors to help support pastors. What did Paul do? Paul went back into the Old Testament and talked about the ox grinding the corn. Mm-hmm. Again, Paul's argument was that the, the ox exercises his, his work and his energy in grinding the corn because he has to carry the stone. And uh, Paul says the, the ox has a right to eat from the grain. And then Paul uses that analogy and carries it over into the into, into support of pastor. He does the spiritual work, so he ought to be rewarded. Notice the principle. He's not saying the pastor get should be a horse and grind, you know, but the principle is there. Uh, and of course, besides that, our Lord says, he that live by the gospel, he that preaches God should live by the gospel. So the principle doesn't contradict any New Testament concept. It enhances it and illustrates it as an analogy. So Paul goes back into the Old Testament and uses that as a basis to illustrate the support of pastors. That's what I'm talking about. That there are Old Testament principles that are still relevant. Um, nobody would question, for example, that there's any there are laws about incest. Right. Uh, again, the modern laws support the idea that there should not be incest, incestual marriages. Again, that is relevant uh, in the Old Testament. It's relevant in the New Testament. The scientific facts confirm that. The science doesn't change because we've come with a New Testament rule. We know that if you intermarry within a certain um, degree, the chances of you contracting certain um, inherited diseases and weakening the whole the whole strain we know that from history, uh, from uh, uh, from science. So I'm just using that illustration that there you have to decide in the old in the Old Testament is it contradictory to a uh, um, law of the land? Does it fall in line with some biblical principle that's already there? But generally speaking, for example, you can't tell people they can't plant corn and beans together. I mean, the Old Testament, you couldn't mix uh, grain when you're planting. You, you couldn't wear certain types of linen and send cotton together. I mean, those are no longer relevant. But we understand the principle behind all of that is the idea of separation. And that now is carried over into the believer's life, where the believer separates from the ungodly. Because the principle, what have righteous to do with unrighteous, what has Bilal to do with Christ. All of the teaching in the Old Testament were pictorial illustrations of calling for the nation of Israel to separate from heathenism and from idolatry. And it was illustrated in every aspect of the life, what they eat, how they dress. It was being reinforced that way. But now in this dispensation, uh, that is no longer relevant for us. Etc. Because we are explicitly told in Scripture that uh, the believer should not be joined together with a non-believer, etc. If you've just tuned in, the name of the program is That's Truth. The voice that you hear doing the teaching is that of Pastor Dr. David Murphy, the pastor of Grace Baptist Church here in Antigua. It's been a little while since I shared this information, so if you are new to the program, I want to let you know who Pastor Murphy is. 
a little bit about his credentials. He's not just someone who likes to sit and talk behind the microphone and spew his ideas. He bases what he says off of scripture. He has a Bachelor of Arts degree in English, a Bachelor of Arts degree in Theology, Master's degree in Religion, Doctorate degree in Counseling. He's doing on going studies with the Blackford Counseling Center in England, constantly reading and studying. He's been married for going on 40 years, a public school teacher for four years. He worked in management for three years, marketing for four years, evangelism for two years in Barbados. He's ministered and pastored in St. Vincent, St. Lucia, and Antigua for over 30 years. And he's preached in many churches throughout the Caribbean. So he's not just a pastor. He has been in the secular workplace, and he understands some of the challenges that you're facing. And we would love for you to call in or to WhatsApp or text your questions, and that he would be able to answer them from a biblical perspective. You can call and be put live on the air by calling 268-462-7420. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse or broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, online at www.radiolighthouse.org. And for this program, we're also on Facebook Live. You can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, Comment your questions, and they'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy that way also. I want to point, say something, Nathan, how the, not using the Bible properly um, in terms of what is applicable in the Old Testament, what is present. For example, in the Old Testament, um, the idea of Israel intermarrying with uh, the, the, the nations around. Yeah. Yeah. It was not a racial issue or ethnic issue. Uh, it was really a religious issue. The reason that is given why they should not is not because they were of a different race or different whatever it is, uh, but because uh, the, the, the Bible says that they will move you into the air of idolatry and steal your commitment to God. So it really was a religious-based uh, spiritual reason why they shouldn't do it. Now, the false interpretation of that was, has been carried over in, in, in the past and has led to a lot of issues. Uh, and, and that is one of the dangers of not understanding what's the principle behind the whole reason for um, um, not allowing uh, this interconnection with Israel. It was carried over and uh, led to a lot of hard feelings in the past. And I think that's very unfortunate. How, how was it carried over or how was it misused? Well, because it came to the point where they did not, people, some churches even were thinking that the interracial marriage was, was evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I'm talking about. So that you had this uh, idea that if you intermarry within another race, you were somehow violating some profound biblical principle and committing some kind of sin. That carried on for a long, long time until finally, I think, it was dismantled. But that was the error of it, right? Because uh, there's no basis. If a person is a Christian, you've got a black Christian, a white Christian, you've got a Chinese Christian, you've got a, a, a Spanish Christian, what right? 
uh, would a person not be able to marry that person? They're human being. They're made in the image of God. They have dignity and right like everybody else. Why then should the pigmentation be the basis of not having a marriage? Now, that does not mean, by the way, that when you have an interracial marriage, people don't need counsel because you do need counsel. Not only interracial, but when you uh, uh, marry somebody of a different language or a different culture, it is so different and so diverse that you have to point out certain elements there, but it cannot be on the basis of a racial thing. There are much more important things than just than that. And I think that that is where a lot of grievous mistakes have been made in the past. And I still think that there is still the residual remnant of that yeah. ill feeling, but that is a result. Of, that has been a result of taking Scripture and a principle, and because Israel was God's people, and God restricted them from marrying, into, but they were heathens. Don't marry the heathen. He didn't say, no, don't marry. Like, for example, take, take um, Rahab, a Canaanite, who became part of the line of Christ, was intermarried with a Jew, but because of her faith, she turned from a heathenism and from her life of prostitution and became a believer, and she intermarried within the Jew. You see the difference there? Yeah. It wasn't a matter of that because she was a, a Canaanite of a, a different complexion or different pigmentation, therefore there must never be. No, the conversion brought her into the realm of God's people. That is where I think a lot of problems happened in the past, and it's very, very unfortunate. It's a good thing that uh, people, are generally speaking, have changed their concept of understanding that People, all people, all races are made in the image of God. All people have that image. All people have dignity, worth, etc., etc. People differ in terms of their culture, and those matters should be looked at. We must not ignore those matters. Um, I, I, I can tell you stories of insignificant things within, even within Caribbean culture that a uh, solution is not an Antiguan. They don't eat like Antiguan. Uh, uh, and it especially depends on which in, what part in Antigua uh, you come from, right? But so even diet, if you marry a person and uh, that is a, a matter, the, the husband likes this, the wife loves it. What are you going to cook? Two plates of food? Are you going to put two 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 pots? Those are issues that need to be discussed. The thinking sometimes is e- even different, and those things need to be discussed. But once the issues are discussed and 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 uh, ironed out, and the people make the choice that they want to go ahead with marriage. That is not the issue, but you must expose them to differences and the ramification of those differences. If they feel they can manage with them, that's their choice. It's a good example uh, that applies even in this day and age of misusing biblical principles. So do my understanding you correctly to say that you can have good intentions and misinterpret or misimply scripture and actually do Christianity harm? Great damage, of course. That has been done in the past and it continues to be done. We have to be thoroughly biblical in principle and we got to make sure that we don't let uh, our pride, our race, our uh, our prejudices, our nationality to get in in connection. If I might use an illustration here, Nathan, I find that uh, I've talked to people and they, they seem to give me the spin that uh, that the problem is is racial. I'm serious. So they, they try to look down. If the person is speaking and the person is a black person in the Caribbean, it's as though, okay, he's okay. But if a, a white person is speaking, it's like, well, you know. So it, 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 it's as though it's pigmentation. The problem is not pigmentation. The problem is a person's heart. 
And if people don't begin to understand that, you you go from white racism to black racism, and you go from where you're not willing to accept other people's nationalities and other people's uh, race, and that becomes... A, so you don't solve one problem by creating another problem. We have to understand the problem with man is man's heart and man's fallen nature. If we begin to look at problems through that perspective, it is neither white nor black, green or gray. It is the sinful nature, and I think that's the key to understanding human beings. Do you have a question that you'd like to ask Pastor Murphy? You can call and be live on the air, 268-462-7420. Maybe you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question. You can send it to 268-782-1454. We're talking tonight about crime and punishment. Your question doesn't have to relate to that, but we will continue on this topic until we receive your question. On the topic of crime and punishment, we talked about what crime is and is crime and sin one and the same. Pastor, I think it's important for us before we go any further to define what is the cause of crime so that we can address the issues. Well, it depends on who you ask. <laughs> what I mean by that, up until the 19th century, uh, crime was generally viewed as the outworking of man's sinful nature. So it was uh, it was universally considered up until the 19th century that an act of crime was the responsibility of the criminal. Uh, that was man's belief for 6,000 years, that when a man committed a crime, he was responsible. However, in the 19th century, that thinking began to change, and people were looking for other explanations outside of man himself. And what has happened, this came about as a result of two things. Number one, it came about uh, because of um, the study of physiology uh, and the matter of, of, of uh, what you might call mental mental problems. Uh, it this uh, a doctor by the name of uh, Jean Baptiste Charchot, uh, a Frenchman who was a neurologist. Uh, he was working on organic neuro- neurological conditions, and he began to realize that with some organic problems that were analogous to what you might call um, disorders um, that people were having. In other words, he connected the behavior with the neurological system. So that created the idea that when people do certain things, it's not necessarily of the will, that the mind is involved in the whole process. So they began this study of mental illness. And that is one thing that that he, he did. Uh, he created the idea that not all crime is of a human will, that a person can do something if he's mentally ill. Now, the student of Charcot was Freud, uh-huh. and that's where Freud now came up with this thing of psychoanalysis of the unconscious controlling people, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and that led a lot to have to think of the uh, mental sickness as um, the cause of pathological behavior and the individual not being considered responsible uh, for that behavior. Sorry, go ahead. And Pastor, we have a caller from Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Good evening, Dr. Panel. Hi, good evening, Mr. Williams. How are you, sir? How are you? Good. Huh? Doing well. Thanks for calling. What's your question? Yeah, I must have forgotten, honestly. What was that? <laughs> remind me, please. So, remind me, because he's right here now. I can remind him. Yeah, I'll tell you about my daughter in Dominica. She wanted to know the link to go and get the station. What's that? 
the link to get the, to the, to oh, yes. the station on, on Facebook. Oh, okay, he's right here now. He's listening. So I, I, I really forgot about that. I, I, I didn't take that note, so I'm so sorry about that. But he took a note of it, and he'll try and get, uh, contact you and get your daughter's name and give her the link to the station. Okay? Uh, What's your question? Uh, after the program? Huh? You want me to give, give, give her the name after the program or right now? Uh, yeah, call back after the program. Call the station number after the program, and I'll, uh, he, he'll take care uh, I'll assist you with okay. your situation. My apologies. Okay. My apologies. I will do that. No problem. <laughs> Anytime. Thank you. <laughs> okay. uh, let me ask you now. Sure. Uh, in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, uh-huh. the vision Daniel had, and it's linked with the same vision that in Revelation chapter 13, Revelation. It has to do with that. Uh, the, the the last beast uh, has to do with the revived Roman Empire, and the Antichrist that is mentioned in Revelation thirteen. Um, he is part of that final beast where you got the little horn in Daniel chapter seven. Uh, the revived Roman Empire and the toes, the ten toes. You remember that, yeah. right? And uh, so, and there's the, the picture as well of the the nondescript animal you had the land you had the bear and you had the uh, right the last nondescript which is a combination of all of them you'll find that is manifested by ten horns and there's a little horn that comes out of the ten horns the, that is ex- in other words Daniel is an ex- expansion and explanation elaboration of what happened in Daniel chapter in, in Daniel chapter 7 especially the last beast so there's a connection. That's why the key to understanding the prophetic word is the book of Daniel. If you're going to understand Bible prophecy, especially the book of Revelation, the yeah. key is the book of Daniel. So there is the connection there between Daniel 7 and Revelation chapter 13 and 17 as well, and 19 as well. Okay. Okay. Thanks for that. You're welcome, sir. Thanks so much for calling. Say hi to the wife, please. God bless. Yes, sir. She's ready to come in. If you would like further information, uh, an episode just focused on Daniel chapter 7, uh, that's Truth, episode 91, nine one, uh, is focused just on end times prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. You can get to that by going to our website, radiolighthouse.org. Scroll down to the second picture that you see. It's a large microphone, and right in the middle of that is a circle that says podcast. Click on that, and then you can click on the That's Truth podcast, and there's a link for archived episodes. And again, that's episode number 91. Thank you for your call, and thanks for listening to the program. Pastor Murphy, you were talking about the causes of crime and yeah, Freud. I, I, right. I was just pointing out that prior to the 19th century, for 6,000 years, uh, it was generally viewed that the individual was responsible for any crime he committed. And then uh, Charcot started doing some investigations, and um, he linked uh, certain disorders with uh, n- neurological problems. That was carried over to the idea that uh, a man is uh, the, the, a mental problem, uh, insanity or something like could cause a man to commit a crime. So not every crime, the person is responsible. Freud his, his became a student, and Freud elaborated greatly on this unconscious nature in man as driving man to do certain things. So what happened eventually, Nathan, is that uh, this whole theory was generalized and has become universally uh, a paradigm where people today virtually believe that you need to distinguish between a normal 
person who commits a crime and and a normal person who because of some mental illness commits a crime one needs to be punished and one needs some kind of help and uh, needs some kind of um, not punishment but needs some kind of uh, assistance in dealing with the problem so that's the first thing that led to uh, first idea the second thing was that sociology carried this theory this psychological theory and this neurological theory to another level Uh, as a matter of fact what it did it took it to the point where uh, it was not just that the person had a mental problem or had this unconsciousness driving him but now they began to say that mental illness was a product of the environment so this led now to the idea that a person who commits a crime is not guilty but the society that he lives in is guilty because it has produced the person that commits the crime. So what that, uh, a guy by the name of Carl Menninger, uh, a famed psychiatrist, wrote a book called Crime and Punishment. And the very theme of that book, listen to crime, the, it was not crime and punishment, the crime of punishment. Listen to the, the crime of punishment. Crime of <laughs> yeah, punishment. Yeah. So in that book, basically, uh, he said that uh, crimes were committed against um, the criminals in punishing him more than the criminal actually committed a crime. So he know, actually, this is where all of this thing began to happen, that the individual is not responsible for his behavior, the environment, mental illness, and his unconsciousness. So it's absolving the individual of responsibility, and, and, and that created uh, serious, serious problems. But that is, the, that is the thinking, the mindset that guides... Uh, legislatures there and, and people who uh, are involved in, in criminology and criminal justice they are trying to explain the act of crime and absolve the person as of much responsibility as possible that's why you have the lessening of punishment and sometimes they're more concerned about the criminal than they are about the, the, the victim it is all as a result of Charcot's um, theory, Freud adding to that, and then sociology now adding the environment to this whole matter. So it, it's, 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 that's the explanation that is given uh, out there, and it's very, very common today in the secular world. I know we often uh, hear you reference the effect that evolutionary beliefs and the teachings of Freud have had on society and the trickle-down effect. Do you think we will, this side of eternity, ever, and I'm not trying to give Freud more credit than he deserves, but do you think we'll really understand all the effects and damage that has been done by the secular teachings of Freud? I, I think people are awakened to it, but I think it's so embedded into the psyche of the educators. You know, it's just like John Dewey. You've heard of John Dewey and his um, progressive education. He's done more to destroy education uh, in America than any other man. Uh, his ideas are, are very common today, basically. But again, his, the whole theory behind his educational theory, uh, that's why Christian schools do better than, than public schools and secular schools, because a lot of his ideas uh, are very, very common, etc. But a lot of these uh, things that happen, including with uh, Freud, um, it's hard for these prideful, proud, arrogant, scientific people who believe in evolution, who have completely discounted God in the Bible, to actually accept any culpability of blame for spreading this kind of thinking that has led to 
such favourable attitude towards criminals and such meanness towards society. It's hard. I don't see how it's going to change. And and don't forget the the media is part of the whole the whole system as well. They they push this kind of thing. He's not responsible. The the movies push this as well. You ever look at some of these uh, things that explain why a guy uh, did what he did and goes back into his parents and his daddy was cruel to him. It's all part of a whole system. And I don't know if we'll ever uh, come to the full real. I think we Christians know it. Who people who are aware of what is happening. But I'm t- not too sure the secular world is going to awaken to it because it's so uh, the society is so psychologized today. Um, I got a book written by a psychologist who said that psychologists can be damaging to you. <laughs> they have now come to the realization that uh, it has perhaps done more damage than any other uh, science, basically. Well, is that a Christian psychologist? No, there's a secular psychologist, no, that? A secular psychologist wow. that wrote that. Yeah, yeah. There's another book by Glasser, he's not a Christian, called The Psychological Society, where he explains that psychology has virtually emboldened man to the point where. Uh, human behavior is not seen as self-cause or uh, people responsible any longer. As a matter of fact, he asked the question in this book, whatever happened to sin? There's yeah. a secular uh, psychologist asking, why have we abandoned the concept of sin? Which sin has to do with personal responsibility. Yeah. See? So I think that those are there who, uh, who see it, but the, 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 uh, the volume of voices in support of this thing um, I don't think they'll ever change this kind of an attitude. It's, it's, a, it's a war of ideas, and I think the secularists have pretty much won the idea. And the other thing, Nathan, if I inject here, the church has surrendered. How so? It, well, it's taken some of these same ideas and brought them into the church. They brought them into their theological seminaries. They teach their pastors these kind of things. The pastors come back into the church and teach the same thing. So it is it's a whole mess that uh, the church is complicit with this kind of a thing. Uh, so I don't, it, it's a, a voice in the wilderness today uh, that will echo differences, but substantially there is this monolithic voice that seems to support all these ideas that are so secular and bring, bring them within the church. And when you speak out against it, it's as though you stir up an ant's nest because everybody is saying, but what makes you think that you should be speak different than other people thinking? The more you're committed to Scripture, the more you understand the, 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 the dire state we're in today and the more need for a real revival of some kind. Otherwise, uh, we go into this this chaos uh, at a more rapid rate than uh, the Bible actually predicts. So you're saying that if you control the educational institutions of a country or of a society, that in a generation or two you can sway society? I think that that's why you think there's uh, America grabbed uh, public education. Remember that, I, I can't remember the year, but most education at one time was, was private. We think that all these Caribbean governments have grabbed uh, education and rather than facilitate the private schools, they've actually swallowed up private schools. When I was in Barbados, there were so many private schools. I think there might be four that are left right now. All the others have become government schools, right? And uh, uh, the government philosophy sometimes is not Christian philosophy, especially when it comes to morality. And when we talk about crime, for example, when we begin to talk about the reason for crime increase, etc., that's one of the things I'll point out. It's the public educational system that has taught the value system as um, um, what you call moral relativism. There's no absolutes, right? Uh, They teach what is called clarification of values, which means that I don't tell you this is right or tell you this is wrong. 
I you got to discover for yourself. All I make the issue clear, but I can't give you judgment on this matter. That's the kind of moral education that we're being taught. <laughs> Can you imagine trying to train your dog with that kind of open mindedness? <laughs> let alone train a, chi- a human that is going to make decisions in the future. I think that's a perfect analogy. It's like these silly people when a child says at five years, "Daddy, I'm a boy, uh, but I, I want to be a girl. I want to be a girl." I mean, it is so crazy that parents would allow that to happen and then give hormone treatment. And, and stuff like that. The adults are becoming the ones that are surrendering authority to kids. I mean, the complete society is completely reversed, right? Christianity needs to call us back to sensible form of living and back to biblical standards. I think if we move back in that direction, you'll see a radical change in society for the good, not for the bad. Pastor, what would you consider to be the main modern ideas that have aided and abetted this confusion about crime and punishment? Well, I would say uh, probably two main things uh, that I think are responsible for that. Uh, One has to do with, I mentioned just a more cultural relativism, uh, which means that there is no absolute norms for society and for behavior. because there are no absolutes, what is right and what is wrong uh, is it, led pretty per, per much to personal autonomy. I decide what is right and wrong for me. Uh, the idea that there are no transcendent values and uh, there are no universals that everybody should be uh, kowtowing to and bowing to. In other words, what I'm saying, Nathan, that we got away from the absolutes of Scripture, Judeo-Christian values that we all... The Western society was built on on Judeo-Christian values. Everybody knew what was wrong. That's why bookery, for example, was on, on most constitutions was uh, was deemed to be criminal because it was based on the biblical idea that God made a man and a woman and that there should not be any relation between two men, etc., etc. But now we've gone away from that. And because of that uh, cultural relativism and no longer any absolutes, this has aided and abetted moral behavior. And uh, if, if you don't have um, norms that set what normal behavior should be, and normal behavior must be based on some kind of morality, but if you don't have any kind of morality, who decides what is normal? And it's not left to the individual. The second thing, I think, is what is called environmental determinism. And what I mean by that is it's now generally conceded that the environment is what shapes the character so the, the individual is a product of the family and the social conditioning within the environment in which he lives. Is that biblical? No, it's not biblical, right? Uh, what is bib- it, the Bible does emphasize that the environment does affect the individual for sure, because it says, "Don't uh, if sinners consent the uh, entice the consent you're not." So you can see the influence of wrong f- people and in wrong environment. But the Bible doesn't teach that you are the product of your environment exclusively. And the Bible holds you responsible for your choices and your decisions in spite of the influences that are brought to bear upon you because you're a moral being who has to make choices. But I think that this idea of cultural relativism, no absolutes, no transcendent values that are everybody should be obedient to, everybody should follow, and the idea that you've got this uh, uh, environmental determinism that you're, 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 you're shaped and formed by your environment. Uh, so what has happened here really is that it has had a profound effect on how people view crime. And now society is being blamed for the crime and not the individual. And that's why there's such a favorable approach to the criminal as opposed to the victim. 
because he's he's seen as a victim of of the environment itself. <laughs> so he's a victim. Everybody's a victim today. When you get away from biblical principles and biblical truth, Nathan, that's where it eventually leads to see yourself as a helpless victim who uh, don't have the capacity to make uh, moral choices. Question from a listener. Pastor Murphy, I've read a number of articles that talk about how you take someone who committed a petty crime, put them in prison, and they are influenced by hardened criminals and come out worse than they went in. What is the biblical answer to this problem? Well, the biblical answer is there's no biblical base for locking up people who did not who committed uh, who did not commit nonviolent crimes. It's, it's not there in the Bible. You go to the Old Testament, you see that. Uh, there's no reference to putting people in prison who commit uh, crimes that are nonviolent. Uh, when a person stole or a person uh, did a nonviolent crime, what, what was required is that he had to work and pay back for what he did, right? What we do today, a man steals a corned beef, a tin of corned beef, we put him in jail for six months. How does that help him? Mm-hmm. You tell me, and as you rightfully pointed out, he's mixing and mingling with hardened criminals. Uh, and uh, so I can see the influence they will have. So the person is right about that. The question is, this is where when we begin to talk about crime and punishment, when we begin to punishment, there have to be looked at alternatives. And uh, we'll talk about that at, at some level, uh, not tonight in this program, but maybe the next program. But I do feel that we are making a massive mistake. As a matter of fact, the recidivism rate uh, is like six, uh, 75 to 80 percent. Wow. Which is, which is tell you that the the um, the system that government is using to rehabilitate uh, is not working. But we keep making the same mistake again. So we're making more criminals and hardened criminals. It's about time that people rethink this whole matter and, and really look at it more thoughtfully and even bring in some biblical principles. You think the Bible has the answer to all oh, of man's problems? I, I don't have any doubt about that whatsoever, that there are principles in Scripture that will help us meander our way through the maze that we found ourselves in. And the secular nonsense that we've imbibed for so long has led us down a path of darkness and delusion. I really feel that we need to need the, need the light of biblical principles to bring us back to a more reasoned approach to dealing with these issues. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 828. The name of the program is That's Truth. Pastor, a quick comment from a listener in Antigua. Thank you to the individual who sent this in. Good night. I've been listening to That's Truth for several weeks now. I've learned a lot. Keep up the good work, gentlemen. God bless. Thank you for that word of encouragement and continue to encourage others. We're glad that you have come across the program, and we look forward to answering your questions in the future. Maybe you have a suggested topic that you would like us to discuss on a future episode of That's Truth. No matter where you are, no matter who you are, we would be glad to receive your topic and prayerfully consider it for a future episode. Again, we want this program to be as practical as possible, and the best way to do that is to talk about what is on your mind and on your heart. You can suggest your topics by WhatsApping or texting them to 268-782-1454. Again, that number to WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. If you are on Facebook Live or if you are a Facebook connoisseur, you can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed 
during the program on Tuesday evening, and you can watch the program, listen to the program, and you can interact with us by sending your comments or your questions right there on your device, and they'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy on air in a timely manner. Or you can call and be put live on the air. The number to call is 268-462-7420. Time across Eastern Caribbean is 8.30. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from Antigua, 1160 AM and 92.3 FM. Pastor Murphy, as we continue on our topic of the crime and punishment, what are some of the ramifications, if there are ramifications, of blaming not the criminal but society for one's actions? Well, there are basically three, um, in my judgment, three ramifications. Number one is there's always a psychological cost of shifting blame from the individual to society. And what I mean by that is by absolving the person of a sense of responsibility, it means that that person loses control of their destiny. In other words, um, the, 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 the individual now is, is almost encouraged to think that he's not responsible for his future. The environment determines that. Uh, for me, uh, et cetera, et cetera. My my unconscious determines that for me. My mental state determines that for me. And I think that in itself uh, fosters an idea of victimhood. How does that help an individual uh, who wants to uh, break away from his crime, et cetera, when he's already encouraged to believe that he's not responsible, the environment is responsible, and he's a victim? Um, the second thing is it, it has a spiritual cost, Nathan. It robs the person of uh, the only ultimate solution to his problem, which is the transforming grace of God in his life. But that transforming grace of God is dependent on a person accepting responsibility for their sin. So how how's a person now who thinks he's a victim and not responsible for his action, why would he ever think he's a sinner and he needs grace? So he's actually absorbed, but, but, but it's put him in a position where what is needed is repentance. But what do I need to repent of if I'm not responsible for my action? So not even the saving grace of God now uh, is available to him because he doesn't see himself as responsible for his actions, so he has no need to repent. So that puts him outside the pale of true, authentic change that can be brought about by the saving grace of Christ when he put it. And then the third thing, of Nathan, is the moral cost. And what I mean by that, by... By blaming the environment and, and, and demoralizing uh, crime, it opens the Pandora box for all kinds of scapegoats to be used. For example, now you've got the, 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 the criminals are saying it's the prison administration and, and the environment. Some are saying, criminals are saying it's the justice system. That's the problem. Some people are blaming the school. It's the problem. Some people are blaming violence on, and sex on, on, on television as the cause. Some people look at narcotics and, and drugs as the cause. Some people even talk racial discrimination as the cause. Uh, unemployment as the cause. Poverty is the cause. You open the Pandora's box now where any excuse can be given uh, as far as why a person does what they do and committed the crime. So again, it emboldens the person uh, to shore up themselves. Phone call. Pastor, we have Nathan calling from Nevis. Thank you for calling, Nathan. And go ahead with your question, please. Yes, good evening. Good evening, Nathan. Good hearing you, man. <laughs> um, Genesis 9-5. Uh-huh. I would like to draw your attention to. 
Okay. Okay. Genesis 9, 5 says, And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Yeah, um, I believe in capital punishment in case you need, if you need me to endorse that. Any man that commits a premeditated murder uh, should forfeit his life. I have no doubt about that. That's a biblical principle that runs in the Old Testament, goes in the New Testament as well. Paul says the government does not hold the sword in vain. It has a right to execute justice. And in the case of capital offenses where a person has willfully, premeditatedly, knowingly murdered somebody, they ought to forfeit their life. A person who commits um, a murder by accident, manslaughter, some uh, knife should not be forfeited. But the Bible does in- endorse capital punishment. And remember, this is pre-Mosaic, Genesis 9. So this been long before the law was enforced. The law was, um, after the law was given, it reinforced that principle. And by the way, the, the, the reason that's given, but Nathan, later if you read in Genesis 9, that uh, the life of man should be forfeited who, who murders another person is because man is made in the image of God. That's the reason it's given. That's the reason. Yes. Now, the animal, the beast, uh-huh. who kills a man, uh-huh. I shed a man, blood, I kill a man, uh-huh. is who held responsible. Yeah, because in the, in the, in the, that comes out in the... In the um, in the giving of the law, if an animal were to kill somebody, the animal is to be killed. So he was held responsible for the act of, of killing the individual, killing a, a human being. So his life was forfeited, and that was enacted uh, under the Mosaic economy. Now, when in our days, uh-huh. sometimes a man would kill a man, and then they blame it on a mental Ill- illness. Uh-huh. No, an animal doesn't have a en- mental illness. Right. And his blood, his life is forfeited yeah. for taking a man's life. Yeah. But in the case of, a, I would say this to you, Nathan, uh, I, I don't believe, I do believe that people can have a moment of insanity. And I think that there are people who can commit crimes and because they're mentally, there's some organic problem with the neuro- neurological system or the, the brain, whatever it is. And I do feel that uh, that ought to be a mitigating circumstance in, in dealing with that person. But I'm talking about what I'm, I'm for capital punishment when there's complete, conscious, premeditated, willful taking of life. There should be no excuse why that person should not forfeit uh, their life. And I think the, if we um, get away from capital punishment for people who actually willfully murder somebody, I think it emboldens other people to do similar crimes. And to say that it's not a deterrent is not true. If you read the Old Testament, one of the reasons given why a man that murdered another man should be murdered is because it was a deterrent. God knows better than we do. And if God says a deterrent, I can guarantee it's a deterrent. I'm not impressed at all by what psychology says if it's contrary to Scripture. The Word of God is infallible, it's inerrant, and God knows better than any human being how He made us, how we are constituted. And if God said uh, that is wrong, it is wrong. Now, I, years ago, yes, sir, found that uh, I had a tendency to commit murder. You? You don't yes. sound like that, man. <laughs> Transforming power of Christ. Let me hear what you're saying. Go ahead, speak to me. There was a tendency to commit murder. There urge, a strong urge uh-huh. to commit murder. Okay. And even to 
to go to the gallows. Wow. It's not just that I want to do it and get away with it. Okay, you want to die. But the, the, the urge was that I would go to the gallows. Now it's, it's jail, it's uh -huh. prison time. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But at the time when it happened, it was closer to those days when they were using the gallows yeah. to kill a person. Uh -huh. If you kill a person. Uh -huh. well, but I, I, then the ahead. urge was to go to the gallows. Uh -huh. so, so what helped you? May I ask a question? What brought you out of that uh, kind of mindset? Well, I just don't know. Okay. I can't explain it. Uh -huh. But did you get saved? Did that help, anything, help you anyway, being saved? Well, when it happened to me, I was a professing Christian. Wow. I, I hope but that, uh -huh. I come to find out it was spirits that were driving me. Okay, okay. Um, I wasn't hearing no voice saying kill, but the impression uh -huh. is on my mind uh -huh. to kill. But no voice saying do it. Okay, okay, okay. But the impression was in my mind uh -huh. to kill. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad. Like if, uh -huh. if I hear somebody say something uh -huh. that I didn't like, then this urge would come upon me. Wow. To kill them. Wow, wow, wow. To shed the blood. Yeah, well, I'm glad you didn't do that because you'd be in jail now or maybe you would be hung. <laughs> yeah, I would be in jail. Yeah. And maybe I would have died already. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you didn't go that step, and I, I'm, I'm glad that you've got a control on it. I would say it's not normal that that should happen, so I, I suspect there's a spiritual war that was going on in your life at that point in time. And I'm glad that you got to that realization, and uh, um, the, the restraining hand of God certainly was in your life. Otherwise, who knows what you would have done. So you're a good witness and a testimony of how uh, things can change in terms of your thinking. Now you want to preserve life. And I would That's hope right. to get people to, uh, uh, enjoy life as well and get saved. Am I right about mm -hmm. that? Yep. Well, God bless you, sir. <laughs> Thank you very much for your call, Nathan. We appreciate you calling. We appreciate you listening from Nevis. And we th appreciate your blatant honesty uh, and the testimony that you have of how God can change a life and can work in a heart. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.40. There is still time for you to send in your question or to call and be put live on the air. The phone line is open and available. Waiting for your call, you can call 268-462-7420 to be put live on the air, or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. If you're listening to the rebroadcast of this program on Saturday afternoon, you can still send your WhatsApp or text questions to us, and we will answer them next Tuesday when we start out the episode. Pastor Murphy, I have some information here in front of me. Uh -huh. It's the uh, top 25 crimes and offenses committed by youth around the globe. And uh, I'm just curious to get your perspective as to whether you're surprised by this or not. But these are listed in the number of uh, prevalence. Number one is theft or larceny. Number two, vandalism. Number three, alcohol offenses. Number four, disorderly conduct. And number five, simple assault or battery. Does that surprise you in the day and age that we live? 
No, as a matter of fact, I was looking at the statistics for the Caribbean. I was trying to get some some real raw data mm-hmm. uh, dealing with crime to find out what's the crime level in Antigua in the Elephant Islands. You can you can Google it, and there's a a website that gives you. But the problem is, they only gave me until uh, 2018. Yeah. I wanted something current, 2019, 2020. They want old information. What I would say when I compared Antigua's um, crime rate and the, the level of crime in Antigua vis-a-vis the other countries, it's very low, extremely low, as a matter of fact. In, not only in terms of murder, but um, such things as burglary and that kind of thing. It's very, very low. So Antigua, whatever the, the police is doing, uh, uh, I, I must commend them because it, when you compare even the St. Vincent I was surprised how many murders there were in St. Vincent vis-a-vis Antigua I, didn't, I thought it would be the very opposite to be honest with you but I, I need to get some more data on that maybe the next time because I'm trying to search to deal with but in terms of the crimes you just mentioned there theft, larceny uh, assault and the toils before that that doesn't surprise me because one of the most commonest crimes in the Caribbean period is burglary and theft. Mm. Uh, those are the two most common 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 things if, if you look at it, if you look at the if you call it the two eighteen or whatever it is there, you notice that. But that's not sorry, because take take um uh young people you can see that f- sometimes stealing is fun. To be very honest, it's very, very funny. I mean, used to steal mangoes when I was a boy. <laughs> I like to uh, like the guy to be chasing me, you know, because it was fun to get him, annoy him, right? <laughs> but when you're young, you don't think about how he's you know disrupting the life of somebody else, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, assault. A lot of that comes about because of the violence that you see in television, etc. It has a name. Uh, I don't like these uh, games that a lot of blood is being shed. You see, and they, they take such delight. I've seen boys doing it, playing this kind of game. It's like the more blood, that has a psychological effect until it comes to a point where it's almost like virtual reality. You lo- it's like a guy who killed pigs every day. He could easily kill a person because to him it's just killing, it's just killing. It's just in his psyche. And I think that it has a psychological effect. So it's not surprising to me, assault. Uh, and then of course with gangs, uh, none of that surprised me that these are the, the, the main crimes that you'll find among youth. Um, so that doesn't really surprise me. Crime number six is possession of marijuana. I imagine that will. Oh, well, that. I guess if you <laughs> if you decriminalize it, it won't be on there anymore. Yeah, I think I think that's the, one of the most grievous mistakes that ever be made. Even if they decriminalize it, I think that would be a penalty. Yeah. Uh, and I, I understand not wanting to put a person uh, on a criminal record because of marijuana in your youth, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it is really, really unfortunate that it's going in that way. Marijuana is not an innocent drug. It's really not an innocent drug. And it's one of those drugs that's a preamble to higher drugs and harder drugs, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, well, just to use the yeah. example, Nathan, we were talking about uh, creating this situation where... Um, there's a moral cost where you give all these capes. Well, for example, take poverty. Okay. A lot of people use poverty as a reason for uh, crime. A guy by the name of Charles Siberman uh, did an exhaustive study on crime and violence, uh, violent criminals. Uh, the book is called Criminal Violence and Criminal Justice. And what he did is that he looked at different groups living in the same poverty environment, right, and there was no correlation between poverty and uh, what a person did. In other words, it was not the poverty because there were people, what happens, uh, he looked at different ethnic groups and the kind of crimes that they committed. And th- he discovered that uh, in certain ethnic groups, 
there was very little crime, even though there was a lot of poverty. So it's not it's not the poverty itself. It is something in the individual. Uh, it's like uh, I think I mentioned on Sunday morning when I was preaching the idea that uh, James Burke, the mm-hmm. Bob Jones, who used to uh, keep a, a hot teapot and keep a tea bag. And when people come into the office and always come, I'll bring to school, I blame it, whatever, you'll just take it, pour it in a teacup, and then put the tea bag in. And what the principle there was this that what is in the tea bag comes out because of the environment, but it was always there. It's not the it's not the it's not the uh it's not the hot water that caused it. It just the environment produced what was already there. See? But how would you respond to the I believe there's a verse where David, I think it is, says, give me enough to where I don't have to steal, but don't give me so much that I um, become proud. Uh, so isn't yeah. that kind of admitting that poverty? I, gotta, can, I can't remember the verse. Uh, the I'll try and look verse. it up. Yeah, while yeah, you. I, I remember the, I know the sentiment expressed. Yeah, th- we're not saying that poverty uh, is not a, um, a factor that pushes people to commit crime. We're not saying that. But what I'm simply saying is that poverty is not the cause of the crime. It has to be from within. Poverty creates the environment where the person commits the crime, but it's not the poverty itself that that causes the crime. Uh, If we do that, uh, and I know people who have been in poverty for a long, long time, they don't commit crime. If poverty was the cause, everybody in poverty would commit crime. So there's something in the individual outside the poverty itself uh, but that doesn't mean that we should not look at poverty as a factor in the increase in crime because when we begin to talk about the cause of crime, that's one of the elements that we raised up, uh, economic deprivation, et cetera, et cetera. But to just blame crime on poverty, uh, I think it does great injustice to the individual responsibility. And that's where we as Christians have got to not fall into the trap of absolving people of personal responsibility in that regard so that we can't exercise proper uh, punishment if it's required. The verse is Proverbs 30 and verse 9, Lest I be full and deny thee, and say who is the Lord, or lest I be poor and steal, and take the name of my God in vain. Again, that's Proverbs. I was wrong. It's not in Psalms. Yeah, But it's a valid point, Nathan, that there is a contributive factor. Nobody debates that. Uh, but when people say that's the cause, right. that's where the problem comes, absolving the individual responsibility. That's where we've got to be very careful. Because when there are several factors that in- cause crime to increase that we will look at. And one of those is going to be the economic opportunities that people have. No question about that. That, that does help to exacerbate the person's situation and push them in the direction of, of our crime. What is the cost of not practicing capital punishment on society? Well, I think it's fairly obvious uh, that if you are able to murder somebody and you spend... When, uh, one of the things when we begin to look at crime again, uh, maybe next week, that's one of the problems in America. A person who murders a person, the average lifetime he spends is about five years. Now think about it for just a moment. The average time he spent... Now he may be given 20 years, but the average time in jail is just about five years. Because of parole and all. Parole and all these different types of things, see? So when a guy knows that I can kill you and I'll be out in five years. I mean, if he really, really wants to get at you, what stops and what incentive is there that he is uh, that he will not be out? So clearly, it has uh, an effect. I don't have anybody who really cherishes death. Right. The Bible says the fear of death is one of the most haunting 
thoughts that a man can entertain. Uh, so I think if a man knows if I murder another man, he's going to forfeit his life, you're going to think five, ten, and sifting, maybe a dozen times about that. So the idea that it's not a, uh, a deterrent is quite frankly ridiculous to say that. What is the biblical view of crime? Or does the Bible talk about crime? Well, the, the Bible locates uh, uh, sin and crime in the individual and it always rests as coming from within the individual. And that's why it is seen the individual as responsible for his actions. Let's look at a few verses for just a moment. Look at um, Matthew twelve thirty-four and 35. Matthew twelve thirty-four and 35 says, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. In verse 35, A good man out of the good treasures and heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil of the treasure bringeth forth evil things. So notice that good and evil comes from where? Within the heart, okay? Now that is elaborated on, look at Matthew 15, our Lord elaborates on that, Matthew chapter 15, verse 15 to 20. This is where you see the criminal element coming in now. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Declare... Matthew 15? Matthew fifteen fifteen, eighteen 18 to 20. 18 to 20. Okay, 15, 18 to 20 says, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceedeth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries. See that? Murder is a crime. Fornication. Fornication. Thefts. Theft. Crime. False witness. Right. Blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashing hands defileth not a man. And who's speaking there? Our Lord himself is yeah. saying. He's saying that murder, theft, and uh, falsehood, and, and uh, perjury, all of that comes from within the human heart. It's not the environment that is responsible. It's the heart, the human heart. The environment might have created factors that influence the decision, but the decision comes from within. The environment can't force you to do something. You can refuse to do something. The other thing is, if you look at Romans chapter 1, verse 28 to 32, you don't have to read all of that, but Paul lists about 19 different sins. And Paul is pointing out that all of those uh, things that he mentioned are coming from within a person because man turned away from God. God turned him over to their own evil ways. So when it comes to the matter of, of crime, crime is a result of sin. And sin is rooted in the human heart. So the root of crime is sin, and the final responsibility for crime is the individual. We must never surrender that. And if we ever do that, um, we will not be in a position to actually exercise any kind of uh, sanction against a person if he's not responsible. Is there a time and a place for the mental uh, insanity plea in a criminal trial? I think so. I think if it can be proven that there is an organic problem, uh, and that has happened uh, in the criminal justice system, of course, people use it uh, to absolve themselves of responsibility. But if you have proper examination and you have professional doctors who actually examine the case and they see there's a neurological problem or some kind of organic problem that is linked to that particular matter, I do think that ought to be taken as a mitigating circumstances in terms of, of, of punishment. I do feel that if a person murders, there should be always some kind of penalty. Even if you're trying to help them medically, 
the fact that the act has been done, but for to be totally set free because they claim some kind of insanity, I am not for that. I think the crime has been committed. I don't think they ought to be uh, given to the gallows, uh, like a person who has willfully, knowingly, premeditatedly committed the murder. But there should be some kind of a cost to it. However, uh, there should be a mitigating cost as long as there is reasonable um, basis for believing there's some kind of insanity involved in that matter. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.53. Still just enough time for you to send in your question via WhatsApp or text message if you'd like us to answer it in tonight's episode. You can send it to 268-782-1454. Is there anything else you want to mention about the biblical view of crime? No, I, I think that the worst thing we can do to an individual is to let him believe that he's not responsible for his actions. Think about that for just. But a isn't moment. it kind to to take that burden off of someone? But how how can that be kind? Where I'm now absolved of my 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 right to control my destiny? You're because I don't have to suffer consequences. <laughs> well, that what does that, that, that how does that ennoble a person's concept? How does that make a person have a sense of dignity and worth and individuality? You've mm-hmm. robbed him of that. And quite frankly, some people want to be held responsible for their actions. Uh, I mean, there might be people who want to absolve, but I would want to be held responsible for my actions. I might give you an excuse, but when I when I really think about it, if I've done something and it's wrong, it's wrong. And I think by holding me accountable, you, you give me hope, because if I can't help myself, what hope is there for me? And how can I repent of something that I, I, I said I'm not responsible for? If I can't repent, how can I get grace? How can I ever be saved and get God's transforming power? So it doesn't, it might seem to do me a service in a sense, but in the long term, it devalues my humanity. Pastor, is there a correlation between the general parenting practices and philosophies that are used in society and how uh, people act and how criminals are treated? Uh, a generation or two later. Yeah, I think when we talk about uh, causes of crime, one of the things that we can come to is the home. I think that is a major failure. When you fail in the home, when you have an absentee father and you have weak moral women who run around and uh, the child doesn't have a proper moral uh, training, moral upbringing, it doesn't surprise me that their peers lead them astray and they get involved in all kinds of, of, of illegal activity. The, uh, there's definitely a linkage bet- between that. When you have strong moral families, you're going to have a strong society. When you have a breakdown in the family, everything crumbles like that. T- take the matter of discipline for just a moment. Um, my son has a little child who's not even two years old, Nathan. Uh, that child has been spanked once or twice with a belt already. I mean, I don't mean abuse. Do you know the easiest way to get her to do something? When she she throws down a book or I'm going for the belt. She races to pick it up. At her age, she has learned to fear the belt. Okay, that's what parents need to do as a child. Now, she will not need licks. I guarantee you that. See, But talking and talking and talking and not learn the child to fear has been detrimental. Uh, this guy, uh, I think it's Dr. Sprock in America. I forgot his name. Or doctor. I forgot his name. Uh, who led America astray by saying that you should not practice corporal punishment in the home. And that's where the whole American system began to disintegrate in terms of, the, of discipline. So a whole generation brought up 
uh, on the idea you should not exercise any kind of corporal punishment in the home. And we are now reaping, and Americans are now reaping. that. And then, by the way, when he finally realized it was a mistake, he turned around and apologized, but it was too late. A generation has already been formed. But those are the kind of things that you have to teach a child to respect authority. If a child doesn't respect mom and dad, what in the world and how would they respect the teacher and respect the police? So the home has a lot to do with the current state and the, 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 the whole level of, of crime. Uh, and I think if, the, if we can fix the home, I think we can fix a lot of problems in our society. Pastor, how would you respond to the Christian parent who is saying, can you explain the verse that says, train up a child uh-huh. in the way they should go and they won't depart from it? Uh-huh. Uh, is that a promise? Because there have been Christian parents who have poured into a young person and then that young person rebels as they become an adult. Yeah. So how do you, is that a promise or? I think that's a general principle. Okay. Uh, like the book, the whole, all the pro, a lot of Proverbs basically are general principles. I think it's the norm that if you bring up a child right, uh, he'll not depart. But there are always exceptions to the rule. Um, you know, when people begin to blame parents for the waywardness of their child, that's not always true. And this is what I throw to them all the time. All right, if you're going to blame the parent for everything a child does, and even though the parent has done it, are you going to blame God for Adam's sin? Could anyone have had a, a better father, a better environment? So you just can't blame parents for every time a child does wrong. Thank you for listening to That's Truth tonight. Thank you for those who interacted with us. If you have a question that comes to your mind throughout the week, go ahead and send it to us on WhatsApp or text message 268-782-1454. And we will start out next week's episode with your question. Be sure you tune in next week as we continue to talk more in depth on this topic of crime and punishment and what the Bible says about it. Keep your radio dial tuned to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.